you got a whistle. If you have not been practicing your whistling, how will you ever be a good grandparent? That's what I say. Hello, everybody. It is 6.56 p.m. on the East Coast, and we are live. We are live over here in New York. Live in New York, and we've got a great show tonight. I'm looking forward to it. We have the return, the return of G. Edward Griffin, or as I like to call him, O.G. Edward Griffin, because the man is an original and we're going to, to uh, expand on our discussions that we started in September of 2022. If you have not seen that, we, we aired it on the network last night. And um, you should just go into the archives and take a listen to it. It was a wonderful evening. Wonderful evening. Really enjoyed that last year. And that was, um, that was a night that we spent a, a good amount of time doing retrospective stuff with uh, Mr. Griffin talked about the early days of alternative media, um, the early days of questioning official stories, warning the world about the days that we're living through right now. So in this episode, we're, I think we're going to be bouncing around a little bit more on specific topics that Mr. Griffin has covered extensively over the years. I want to ask him about JFK, since that comes up every so often with this very this excruciating uh, slow drip of assassination records that... Uh, that really tells us nothing, but there's so much to be said, and so much born from that incident, of course, and uh, questions that have come in from the audience, from friends of ours, from many of you out there, about Jekyll Island, and I even want to go a little bit ancient biblical history with him as well, because it, uh, it often gets overshadowed by all the work that he's done on big topics like the Federal Reserve, but um, he's written about the location of Noah's Ark and I want to jump into things like that you know multi-layered existence a lot of different things at play both the physical and the metaphysical so yeah I think it's going to be a hell of a night and with you guys in tow how can we go wrong so thank you so much for being around and uh, and let's just get to it i want to thank all my sponsors go to quite frankly.tv and you can check it out on the affiliates page our preparedness our cigars gold and silver tony from wise wolf is going to be on with us on monday night and that's going to be a good one too because everybody is really scrambling around looking for all types of things to safeguard themselves from who knows how many wrecking balls swinging our way soon. But, uh, yeah, that's why I want to say just a blanket thank you to our sponsors on the affiliates page on quitefrankly.tv. The links are in the description below, so you can go there too. Um, Dr. Albert Taylor, the soul traveler, is on with us tomorrow. It's going to be a great follow-up. We have two return guests in a row. Actually, three in a row if you count Shane Cashman on Friday. But Dr. Albert Taylor, I've been waiting to get him back on the show for almost two years now. And I can't wait to do remote viewing, astral travels, um, out-of-body experiences. It's going to be good to go back and review a lot of that and then ask the follow-up questions I've been itching to throw out there for a while now. And always remember, 
Saturday night, this Saturday, April 22nd, we will be live. We will be live. I just don't know what we're talking about yet because that night shift, that night shift thread is coming along slow. One day it will make be the makings of a good show, but right now there is, um, well, there's a couple of things there actually. Jeez, there's some long shit. How the hell am I going to get through this? Guys, you have to try to abridge just a, just a little bit. Damn, there's some long things here. I got to do some editing if it's good. We'll see. Uh, so who knows? Maybe there's a chance that we can do night shift episode on Saturday night. Damn. It's like, got to be separated by chapters, all this stuff. All right. Well, I guess I'll just have to put that in, in the disclaimers next time. All right. Let's go into the grab bag. Shopping all knives for tonight's tonight's go. Of it. Oh, wait. I forgot to go live on Rumble. My bad. I always do this. Hold on, let me make sure that I'm live on Rumble. One second. Nope. It's giving me some problems over here. <sighs> Hold on. Oh yeah, I am. It says I am live, but it also says go live. So am I live now? Yes, I am. Well, we'll just have to pray. Here we go, a headline from USA Today. Exclusive Robert F. Kennedy Jr. launches unlikely presidential bid backed by 14% of Biden voters. 14%. That's probably uh, most of the people who voted for Joe Biden in actuality. But people with pulses, I should say. Robert, oh, I shouldn't say that or else uh, somebody will sue me for $2 billion. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. launches his unlikely bid for the Democrat presidential nomination Wednesday with the support of 14% of voters who backed Joe Biden in 2020, an exclusive USA Today poll finds. That is surprising strength for a candidate who has a famous political name but is now known mostly as the champion of debunked conspiracy theory blaming childhood vaccines for autism. They can't. They're, they are just, they are so... <laughs> they're, they're animals. They're animals. No self-control. Animals. In the survey taken Saturday through Tuesday, only 67% of Biden's 2020 supporters said that they would support him for the Democrat nomination over his current challengers. Kennedy stands at 14% and self-help author Marianne Williamson uh, is at 5%. Another 13% are undecided because they haven't been dug up yet. The poll was taken by landline and cell phone of 600 Biden voters identified from national polls, state polls, and uh, the local coroner's office from 2020 to 2022. It has a margin of error of plus or minus four dead people points. So good luck, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I'm looking for some good television in 2024, and there's nothing else on, so why the hell not? All right, here you go from the New York Post. Let's be blunt. Legal weed is turning New York workers into zombies. Oh, I don't think that that's... I think that that long predates the weed. Well, the weed has been there long since legality, number one. But the zombie-like, not caring apathy glazed over looking one's eyes that uh 
That's coming from an amalgam. That's a, that's a, an amalgamation of things. The Big Apple is now the Big Blunt. Not just because decriminalized marijuana led to pro, uh, proliferating mayhem in the five boroughs. What does that mean? What the hell does that mean? Hold on, they have it linked. New York's disastrous rollout of legal weed is costing money and lives. The Sunday night murder inside a Harlem smoke shop near the corner of 125th Street and Malcolm X Boulevard, the second shooting in the neighborhood in the near, a savage reminder of the state's stupendously disastrous legalization of marijuana. What are you talking about? It has nothing to do with marijuana. I don't even have to read this. It has nothing to do with marijuana. Probably has to do with they know that people are spending money there and they're going to, I mean, what? What? Let's smoke some weed and go rob liquor stores and, but no, get out of here. Listen, if you don't smoke, fine, but don't lie about what it does and, you know, what it does to you. Don't lie about aggression and all that other shit. If you still want, if you smoke marijuana and you still want to kill somebody, then you're an animal. You're an animal. It takes that murderous feeling away from you. If you can't even suppress it with marijuana, then there's, uh, please. Not just because stinky smoke hangs everywhere. They're saying that there's just a, a haze of marijuana smoke in the, in the city now. Seeping into subway cars and even Broadway theaters. The acrid odor I detected in the crowd, crowded men's room of the Majestic Theater a few weeks ago was not from the Phantom of the Opera smoke machine. It's also because of forbidden to utter truth. An age where raising the minimum wage ever higher has become a mantra, namely a license to get high has turned service employees into zombies. I've lived in the city nearly all my life. I've had to repeat my highly complex Starbucks order, a tall coffee, three times to get response from the bummed out barista the way I do now. No, bummed out, it's just, listen. All seems yellow to the jaundiced eye, I guess. If you want to blame all the world's problems on marijuana, then, uh, then, then fine. But I'm telling you, the barista is depressed for a whole other reason altogether. Life has changed. D- life has changed. This is so such a myopic thing to focus in on. Things are changing widespread. And we're going to be talking about the NPC phenomenon soon. We just, uh, we just published a, um, a piece that we had been working on for a while about the fourth turning. That, that'll be a, a topic of an upcoming episode probably next week. But we're working on a big piece about the actual NPC phenomenon that's real. And I think that if we lean on making marijuana jokes, we miss the real, the real plot here. But speaking of being a, a zombie with no brain whatsoever, Patty Lapone who is a, uh, a folk hero to many in my family. And I got to say, I want to throw up that I've seen her so many times live now because when she's not singing a song, she is a dumb, dumb bitch. Infinitely dumb. She was on The View. And she says that she has no idea the difference between the Christian right and the Taliban. Listen to this. This before and I'm going to get in trouble. But I have said this before, and it's been in print. I don't know what the difference between our Christian right and the Taliban is. You see, you see, she had to. She. This is all 
what a thespian does when they deliver their lines. She thought right there she's going to get a nice, nice rousing applause. She had the pause all done, the delivery. She said it many times as she already uh, let on there. It's been, and it's in print, so she's not backing down from it. She's very, very strong whammon. Very strong whammon! I have no idea what the difference is. You're not... You do? You don't? Oh, well, how about we do this? How about we airdrop you? How about we airdrop you into Afghanistan, Patty? How about we get you airdrop? I know that you have new hips and new knees now, so you should be able to, to, to do the, uh, the halo drop just fine. Let's airdrop you into Afghanistan, your yappy ass, and you'll find out real quick what the difference between living in the United States with the Christian right and the Taliban are. Not the only person who's said that. Mm. I don't. I, I just don't know what the difference is. Yeah. What's happening in this country right now, in the name of religion, is so dangerous. Yeah. What is it? What is happening in the name of religion? But of course, they are able to speak in vague generalities because it's a code. This is all just like code talk. Uh, everybody, they know. They know that they are walking on very morally bankrupt. I don't know, uh, th th this morally bankrupt grounds here. They know that if they go into the weeds of what they're saying, what they're implying, the way that they pep each other up, the way that they you know rile each other up against their supposed uh, opponents, political, spiritual, everything, the farther they go and the more blunt they speak, they know that it's indefensible, their entire worldview, completely indefensible. It is anti-liberal. It is completely illiberal. They are tyrants and they're murderers and they're apologists for those who are willing to do all those things, even though they themselves would not be willing to knock you out and take your wallet out of your back pocket or kill your child. They're, they're insane. And, um, but the, and of course, round table of whammon. It's the ladies. Ladies, they are destroying. They are, well, well, they're taking programming that was given to them and really running with the ball. But holy shit. Holy shit. You cannot. It's very hard to find men making statements like this. Uh, of course, you know, the left. There's a, there's a great, great, great supply. But geez. Just awful. Um, here's a little bit more for you. If you want to talk about programming, CNN politics. I wanted to go to CNN for this, just to see what they're th talking about with, with Fox and uh, Dominion. The 787. This is the headline: the 787 million dollar check that Fox must cut to Dominion won't restore the damage to U.S. democracy. See, what they're saying is that it didn't go far enough that they nearly, they paid three quarters of a billion dollars to an electronic voting machine company who did not suffer any damages whatsoever. They're going to be enriched by, to the tune of three quarters of a million dollars. They asked for nearly two billion dollars. And for what? What's the real purpose of this? What is the real purpose of this? Go ahead. Dominion suffered no damages, certainly n nowhere near $2 billion. But this was about further hardwiring into the record the absurd idea that the stillborn presidency of Joe Biden was nothing short of legitimate. All right? 
This is all about hardwiring and brainwashing. And Fox, they are no friend to us. So wherever this money is going to be coming from, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure that they, they wouldn't, if, if, if it was their money or not, I'm sure they don't want to write the check. But um, they ain't no friends of ours. Just very weird. The whole thing's weird. And that's what we have. 712, 712. Let's jump into tonight's show. I want to do a couple more things to set this, the stage for G. Edward Griffin. And we'll be uh, taking a trip to, through time again. And I think that the, the topics that we have are pretty cool, pretty varied and, and uh, diverse. I think we're going to have a good time. And I'll be looking forward to your Super Chats and your calls afterwards. Quite frankly, superchat.com. We have tonight, tomorrow, and then Friday. Uh, Friday around noon is when I will collect all of the names who have uh, sent in Super Chats to, quite frankly, superchat.com. So you'll get in the running to receive my copy of Brave New World with all my notes. And then I'll write something to you. And that'll be that. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Good morning. My question is, since we're, we're spending all this money, where are we getting the money from? And my second question is, if I can shit in your mouth. I apologize for that, Congressman. Uh, don't take that kind of language here on the Washington Journal. stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! So, let's get into some stuff here. I have some throwback videos of um, G. Edward Griffin that I want to do maybe in the second half. And it has everything to do with his, especially his uh, calling out and coloring in of what the communist game plan for dividing up and destroying American civil cohesion is all really about to, to bring in later phases of this plan this plan that uh, he knows is international he has broken down agenda 21 everything in so many different ways so many different ways over the years it's not to be believed to where you can say wow is he a prophet no no not a prophet 
but it's very easy to tell the future when you've got all the, the pieces splayed out in front of you and you know what pieces to look for. Here's one of them. He talks a lot about in the, in the past about what was going to be done to race relations and the condition of people in this country based on their race, how past uh, wounds can be exploited and made to be fest- and made to fester, and then how you can turn people on each other to create not blue versus gray civil war, but again, that Rwanda hotel kind of strife, South Africa kind of strife. Take a listen to these two um, headlines. Here's from the New York Post today. Teen brothers among three arrested in Dadeville, Alabama, Sweet 16 mass shooting. Two teen brothers and a 20-year-old man have been arrested in connection to Saturday's mass shooting at a Sweet 16 celebration in Dadeville, Alabama that left four people dead and 32 injured. 32 injured. Brothers uh, Tyreek McCullough and Travis McCullough, both of Tuskegee, were both arrested Tuesday night, the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency announced Wednesday morning. So it is, uh, it's all uh, black teen shooters, black vic- victims, and, um, and this whole thing is essentially nonstop. There's Baltimore. We had uh, rioting in Baltimore uh, last week or about a week and a half ago. We had Chicago again. This stuff is it's nonstop. And, and again, a lot of the victims, the people who are living in these neighborhoods, they're black as well. They want help. They see that something's going. There is, there is a contagion. There's a contagion here. And it is reported on. Of course, when you talk about 32 shot, four dead, sweet 16s, funeral shootouts, things like that, it's hard to ignore it. But I know just from talking to people who live in these in these areas all across the country, if there was even a, even mention in the local police blotter from time to time about shootings and murders and all that, they would be stunned. That's just local reporting. This stuff is suppressed, and it is this is this is the the uh, the chickens coming home to roost. This is generations of investment into destroying people's lives through bad education, um, through uh, the government intervention on everything, especially parenting, single motherhood, and, and more. Media indoctrination, terrible, terrible stuff that's going on right now. And then you compare it to this. There was an 84-year-old man in Kansas City, Missouri, who was having his house broken into by a black teenager, and he shot at him because he was scared to death, he said. And it was, it was just a, uh, a flesh wound, and, and people are, are hoping that he doesn't spend the rest of his life in jail now. This, of course, has gotten attention from the White House. The White House has taken the teen's parents in to meet with them, make sure they're okay. W- w- I wonder what will be done to the people who are getting shot Every day in Chicago and in, I mean, it's just so pointed and it's all there to make sure, hopefully, this is an investment. Just like it, there, it was an investment to get people to go and, and try to raid the White House when Donald Trump was living in there. They wanted people to get killed. Just like it was an investment to send up those caravans of migrants for, uh, to, toward the southern border in the lead up to the 2018 midterms. They wanted people to get killed. 
Why? Because all they have to do is wait and point and shine the spotlight, and there you have it. They want the chaos, and it's always turning up the attention here. Affidavit says Andrew Lester was scared to death by teen trying to pull open his door at night. The 84-year-old man who faces the rest of his who faces the rest of his life in prison for injuring a black teenager during what he thought was a home invasion told police he was scared to death during the incident. Lester told police that Ralph Yarl was pulling on the exterior door of his Kansas City, Missouri home in an apparent attempt to break in, prompting him to grab his revolver and shoot the teenager who was expected to make a full recovery. The elderly man told cops he believed he was protecting himself from a physical confrontation and could not take the chance. The large male coming in to his house where he lives all alone, according uh, of, a, of a confrontation with a large male, where he lives all alone. However, following the White House involvement, Joe Biden even met with the injured teen's family. BLM protests and concerted media outrage campaign, Lester's campaign of fair trial, are basically non-existent. The narrative has now been set that Jarl was merely ringing the wrong doorbell and Lester's reaction was extreme and possibly driven by racism. Lester stated he opened the interior door to his home, saw a black male approximately six feet tall pulling on the exterior storm door handle, the police affidavit said. He stated he believed someone was attempting to break into the house and shot twice within a few seconds of opening the door. Lester stated the male ran away and he immediately used his home phone to call 911. Lester stated that he never seen the male before. He stated no words were exchanged. And uh, it was the last thing he wanted to do, but he was scared to death due to the male's size and Lester's age, 84, and his inability to defend himself. He believed he was protecting himself from physical confrontation and could not take the chance of the male coming in. Lester was visibly upset and repeatedly expressed concern for the victim. And yet, the White House and all the same community rabble-rousers came right on in and did what you would expect them to do. Because it's all about how do we continue to escalate this until we get the proper response. And it's all about proper response. They want retaliation. They want retaliation. That is something that is so easy, easy for them to steer because all it is, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. They're actually able to create, create the enemies that they've been lying about existing all around them for the last however many decades now. They have to lie about that stuff. Well, they're trying to create, create proof of their lies. And that's just where we're at. Now, as for tonight... There is no real reason to um, to delay this anymore. Um, beat around the bush. G. Edward Griffin is our returning guest this evening, and for no other reason than it is uh, G. Edward Griffin. That's why I said we got to get him back. There's so much more to talk about. He has been working since the late '50s, early '60s on this. A very early truth warrior, and a lot has happened since his September appearance. I mean, we're, we are seven months closer to digital currency. We're seven months deeper into so much, so much stuff. There was a JFK revelation back in December. I would love to talk to him about that. But here's a little bit on his bio, if you don't know anything about him. G. Edward Griffin, a writer, documentary film producer, and founder of Freedom Force International, listed 
in the who's who in America. He is well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand. Since the last time he was on, I should say, several of my friends who never even knew who he was went out and bought Creature from Jekyll Island and they have been blown away, which of course was a a major red pill moment for many of you out there, many of you. He has dealt with such diverse topics as archaeology and ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, terrorism, internal subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, the science and politics of cancer therapy. That is something that we're going to have to bring him on in the future for just maybe the third time he's on. I want to talk about the cancer therapy stuff. The Supreme Court and the United Nations. Uh, His better-known works include The Creature from Jekyll Island, World Without Cancer, The Discovery of Noah's Ark, Moles in High Places, The Open Gates of Troy, No Place to Hide, The Capitalist Conspiracy, More Deadly Than War, The Grand Design, The Great Prison Break, and The Fearful Master. Ed is a graduate of the University of Michigan where he majored in speech and communications. He's a recipient of the coveted Telly Award for Excellence in Television Production, the creator of the Reality Zone Audio Archives, publisher of Need to Know News, Geez, there's just so much. There's just so much. He's such a busy guy. I don't even know. <laughs> or how do you even like? But it goes on from there. And I just can't wait to bring him back now. Um, Mr. Griffin, if you're there, it, uh, it's great to great to join. Uh, have you join us again. Well, thank you. I'm here. Jeez. I don't know if you know that I'm here, but here I are. Y- yeah, there you are. And here I am, and it is seven months since you were on with us last, and boy, so much has happened. First, let me ask you, how was the uh, how was the Red Pill Expo? How was the experience? I know you've been doing it for a little while now, but you had some more dates coming up at uh, the last time we spoke, so I wanted to see how that went. Yeah, well, we had a little setback. We thought we were all set for uh, for June. In uh, Montana, of all places, we'd expect no problem in Montana. That's the old-style America back there. They have a lot of cowboys, and they, 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 they're not afraid of guns. They know that they need guns to protect themselves against criminals and so forth. But anyway, it turned out that we made a, a plan to be in um, Billings, Montana uh, facility, and apparently somebody got to the owners of that outfit because they all of a sudden turned chilly cold and said, no, we, uh, we're not going to let you have our facility. So we had to go, you know, uh, scurrying around to find a new place. And I'm glad we did because now we, we're going to go in um, to Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines, Iowa is, um, is our destination and the dates are August 12 and 13. And it's, it's revving up very fast right now. I'm assembling the first uh, eight or seven or eight speakers that we've already lined up. We'll be publishing them probably in the next day or two will be on our site. Some of them will be there tonight. And uh, as usual, um, I don't know if you're aware, but we usually have about 18 or 20 really top-notch speakers. This is not a lightweight program. And this isn't just fluff like rah-rah, let's um, let's throw the rascals out and let's vote Republican or whatever the, a lot of people like to do. They think that's their patriotic, uh, they discharge their patriotic responsibility when they think that all they have to do is figure out who they're going to vote for. But anyway, we're, we go much deeper than that. And we, as you know, we deal with facts and uh, data that allow us to decide who we want to vote for, or even better yet, 
let us decide who we're going to choose to have as a candidate. That means that we have to get active in politics. And so it's much deeper than the rah-rah kind of thing. I don't know if that answers your question. This is number 10 coming up. It seems like it was just yesterday that we had our first one back in, in um, 2017. And that we've had a couple of them, a couple of years where we had two of them in the same year. This year we'll only have one. Next year we'll probably have two and so forth. Anyway, we're off and running. I guess that's the short version. And we're very, very happy with the way things are going together. That's great. That really is. I, it's, it is it is uh, puzzling that you would get that kind of a, um, I don't know, as you said, some anybody to get chilly cold with you in Montana, you would think that that would be, that'd be a place where you can, uh, you can go and really stretch out and be all right. But in, in retrospect, as you said, having this coming over here in, into the, the Iowa middle of America area, you probably get a lot more people to be able to come out since uh, it can converge on one area. It's just like right in the center. I don't know. I think from a, from a traveling standpoint, that might be a lot easier for people to get there if they wanted to come out and see. And, um, you know, uh, you're talking about all the speakers that you have up. This just popped into my mind. Um, obviously, over the 60-plus years that you've been working on the, this stuff now, you have met and worked with some really uh, amazing people. Off the top of your head, uh, in your opinion, who are some of the brightest lights in the truth movement, red pill movement that you've worked with since the beginning, a living, living or dead? Who are some of the people that you really loved working with the most? Well, that's a good question. It's a it's a dangerous question because uh, I mean, if I had time to prepare the list, I'd be good good to go. But I'm afraid if I mention one or two people and forget to mention somebody else, <laughs> it's my, I, I put you in a tough spot. Really I know big trouble. <laughs> yeah, but um, if I go back in time, even before the expo, there are certain people that stand out in my mind. And I remember as a young fellow, I was trying to, uh, to emulate them, trying to be like them, you know? I mean, that's, that's what young people do. And um, if they have good role models, it's, they're fortunate. Today, of course, a lot of the young people uh, don't know it, but their role models are, have been selected by their enemies, and they're, they're being subverted in their culture by having really pretty bad role models. But in my case, I was lucky. Um, I was... Uh, I was born into a broken family, and fortunately, I was rescued by uh, my uh, aunt, um, school teacher aunt, and my grandmother took me in, and so all of a sudden, I was on a different path. And my aunt was a great role model. She was a, a teacher, as I said. She taught English, and she was she was very um, very good at teaching. She didn't scold too much. She didn't make you feel like you were a piece of dirt. If you didn't get it right, she would just encourage you to get it right and say, let's go over that again. And so I learned a few good uh, habits from her, and I learned a little bit about attitudes. She, very seldom did I ever hear her raise her voice or or say anything nasty about anybody. And came up with a phrase called antiseptic. Well, that was... A kind of a statement that would come from my aunt and it would be something like this if somebody says well uh, miss uh, tucker that was her name uh, what do you think of my new dress you know she'd say now with the word like remarkable 
doesn't tell you very much. Remar I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, you broke up right there. Are Mark, you, 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 was it a terrible dress or a good dress? Yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Griffin, you broke. Oh, you, I'm sorry. You, that's a bad place to break up. I know, that's but but, but you said it was remarkable. Yeah. You, that, well, the, the word was remarkable. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That was an anteism because you could take it both ways. It's remarkably good or remarkably bad, but she would imply that it was remarkably good. You know, if you would, um, I would record it, I can send you more. Hold on a second. Maybe you found it. <clears throat> yeah. Hold on a second. Wait a second. Uh... I apologize. Uh, there you go. Right. Sorry, so we're everybody at home. We're having a little bit of a uh, connection issue, okay. but you know, uh, you know, recording uh, in progress. There you go, uh, Mr. Griffin. If you wanted to, you can stop your video, and yeah. I can I can just throw up the uh, the the okay. audio. You can uh, throw up the audio, and uh, and and we can just I can put up a a, a picture on recording our headshot. Recording stopped. No, oh, there you go. Oh, do you hear me? Do, do you hear me now? Recording is stopped now. Well, so I'll have. To. I can hear you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. So then, let's just try to push through. Then. So you're talking about okay. your aunt. How your aunt was a big was a was a big uh, influence on you, and All and right. I guess she showed you the the importance of of using uh using using words yeah. to be able to even get through sticky situations. How a word like remarkable could not really uh, give up your position on what you really think well, about something. <laughs> You might say that, that that was kind of uh, uh, underhanded, but it was never underhanded with my aunt. So it was she wasn't trying to deceive anybody. She was just trying to make everybody feel good and and uh, not have to lie or something like that. But uh, anyway, I, I mentioned all this because she was a role model. I remember when I got into the uh, into the real world of of um, you know what's happening in the world and the fact that we're what we've been taught as kids and important issues of the day the way we understand them to be are not that way at all and that's what we call the red pill red pill finding finding out what the world is really like when i got into that part of the world i had some other people to admire and use as my role models dan smoot was another one he's gone now of course but uh, back in the day, in the 1960s, when I got reading on this, in the 1970s, Dan Smoot was putting out a, a weekly Dan Smoot report. And um, he was a retired FBI agent back in the day when FBI agents were really on the right side. And uh, I admired how he researched things. He got a lot of very, and I thought, gee, that's, that's cool. He does. Okay, uh, hold on, uh, Mr. Griffin. Uh, would you mind? Uh, would you mind if I hung up with you on this and called you from another line, and we just do audio, and I call you on the phone we spoke on before? I think that at this point, if we, as long as we got some good, solid audio, we'd be able to do a lot of great stuff together. Because we're losing so much of what you're saying right now, I, I don't. Right. Uh, I'll do whatever.
whatever you what you want to do. Oh, okay, so I'm going to go on a really really quick break. Well, and, I'm recording it, but you're not getting it. Yeah, yeah. Well, for the for everybody at home uh, listening to this, especially live, it's it's probably not really registering. So what I'll do is I'll give you a call from uh, my my studio number over here. The area code will be nine one four, and I'll uh, and and we'll just do a lot of this through audio, just so that we can at least get the nice conversation down on the on the uh, on the on the record here is that okay okay I'll give you a call all right hold on a second ladies and gentlemen if you just give me a moment I will be back in hold on a second let me get you let me get you Frank Frank uh... yeah here take this just for a second Mr. Griffin, how are you? I'm doing great. Oh, you, this sounds oh. this sounds so beautiful right now. Uh, compared, to, <laughs> so let's just roll yeah. with this. Okay, all right. So we'll not attempt to do any video, just uh, like it was a telephone interview. That's it. Old old school radio right now. Old school. All right. Let's see how that works. Okay. So, so you were talking we about, you were talking about some early influences of yours. Oh yeah, that's probably not of much interest to anybody, but it all came, came to mind when you asked me about something that triggered that in my memories. So I was just talking about Dan Smoot, who did a, a marvelous job of teaching me how to research a topic and uh, get to the real core of issues and avoid a lot of flowery phrasing and uh, and sort of wrap it up at the beginning. Is this what we're going to tell you? And then he tells you, and then he tells you, tells you what he told you, so forth. And... Um, of course, I did a book called The Life and Words of Robert Welch, who is a very controversial character. He, um, he was the founder of the John Birch Society, and I, I did his biography. And um, that, was a, that was a man that had a tremendous amount to admire. He was a, one of the brightest humans I'd ever met. By brightest, I mean intelligent, memory and everything. Um, when I got into the story of his life, it was incredible. He graduated from... Um, North Carolina University at the age of 14. Can you believe that? I could. And, and, you know, yeah. that, the John Birch Society, that's one of those things where uh, the farther back you read, that was one of those uh, those organizations where if you were associated with that, it was, it was a, something that was almost like universally used as a smear. So when oh, I when yeah. I see that even today when they talk about people are you, they use John are you one of those John Birchers or whatever um, when I first heard that used as a uh, you know as a derogatory kind of a snide thing to say I thought okay well uh, given the people who are using it like this as a weapon it must have actually been something of, of value and the more I read about it you know I see people like you are in there and I it's incredible 
Yeah, well, you you guessed it right, but that's because you had a little information to build on. The average bloke, you know, doesn't know that, especially back in the 60s. Uh, all they know is that uh, they opened up the newspaper one day, and there's a headline, and um, it said something like, uh, John Burt Society Exposed as Communist, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, all you do is you read your headlines and you say, well, this is the newspaper. It's, this is news. This is the truth. And, uh, boy, that sure affected my life because by this time I was deeply involved with the group, and I knew, of course, that wasn't true, what they were saying. It was very strongly anti-communist, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, But all of a sudden, people in my family, uh, people, my friends, uh, people in the church where we went, all of a sudden they wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't even look at us. And um, my poor wife, she'd go to a meeting, a church meeting, and, and nobody would sit next to her. It was incredible, you know. We thought, wow, the power of the press is just incredible. That's when I really got serious about this thing. I realized how deeply involved we were, how far we were actually gone when something, a, a bold lie like that could be spread so quickly and, 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 and be accepted by almost the totality of the population. Well, That's why we are in trouble. Oh, no doubt. And, and you know, probably around that time, and especially in the 1960s, is when, and we talk about it on the show a lot, is when the proliferation of that, that, that term conspiracy theorists went around. And we know that that was a, you know, an, an internally generated uh, slander uh, that was created by those who were trying to manage the official story of the JFK assassination. And I, I wanted to bring this up with you because we spoke last in September, but in December of 2022, as you know, there's this agonizingly slow release of the assassination files that's going on, and this one little release that they sent out in uh, in December, it was a small batch of the CIA's connections to Oswald and other minor things. But we also had people come, uh, you know, go to people like Tucker Carlson, people from the inside who uh, were giving newsmen and women their inside scoop that, yes, it was the CIA who took out Kennedy, that it's a whole different country from what we thought it was. It's all fake. And I wanted to ask you, since this was back in uh, December, uh, we didn't have any JFK talk in our last appearance. How did the circumstances surrounding his death impact you and your work, aside from being labeled a conspiracy theorist, which was a a direct result of that uh, official story? Well, it had a profound impact because uh, if you go back to that time, it was not just labeled a conspiracy theory, but uh, the idea that Oswald was supposedly a, a, uh, a communist, which of course he was not. He was, as you already know, was already working for the CIA uh, as an undercover operative, penetrating into the communist movement. And yes, he was handing out uh, pamphlets uh, praising Castro. That was part of his job as an infiltrator into the communist movement. He had to go along with all that stuff so that he would be accepted. But he was really there as an undercover uh, operative, and they just sacrificed him because they needed, you know, they needed somebody to blame for the shooting other than the way it really happened, and he was dispensable. And the poor chap, uh, I really feel sorry for him. In the beginning, I didn't know any of that, and I thought, ah, who is this dirty dog? But it impacted me tremendously because at the same time that um, that all happened, remember Oswald was widely believed by almost everybody to be a communist. And so, and uh, then, but then they said, well, the Birch Society, they're the ones, they're the communists too. And a lot of people were told that we were involved and we were responsible for the assassination of, uh, 
of JFK, of all things. And in fact, we had an office in Houston, I think it was. I wasn't at that point anywhere near uh, Texas. But anyway, there was an office of the Birch Society in there somewhere. And um, we had a, it was a very small office, and there was a lady, a, a volunteer that worked in the office taking calls and so forth, and she had a desk, which was not too far from the front window. And on the day after the assassination was announced, um, a bullet was fired into that office and went right above her desk where she would have been sitting. It would have gone right through her. But she was not at her desk at that moment. I Jeez. think she went to, to get a glass of water or something. And uh, so that was the kind of, of um, passion that would be, was being whipped up. And at that point in history, a lot of people were, they thought of all, of all things, they thought the Birch Society was um, part of it. And, uh, and again, it's another example of how you can, you can create mass hysteria if you, if you own the media like uh, our enemy does. So yeah, it impacted me a lot because I thought, I wonder if somebody's going to try and knock me off because they think I was helping Oswald or something like that. Well, you know, uh, all these years later, I think I pointed out myself as much as I can, but of course, it's a lot different for someone like yourself who has been alive and documenting and really a part of uh, of, of 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 explaining and uh, you know recording your thoughts and interpretations and analysis of all these things as they are happening throughout the generations uh, where where you have Kennedy and then you have all the wars that came on after that. Pretty much the Afghanistan model was rolled out for the first time in Vietnam. And we're, we start seeing all of this stuff really come together with the national security state running wild. And that very same, everything we're living through today is, is the same groups. Uh, it's different generations of them, of course. It's the, grand, it's the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. But uh, the, the same system that was operating back then that you were reporting on is now a very uh, – it, it, it's still controlling everything. It's, it's, it's mutated in many ways. So uh, what would you say about the modernization of the system uh, and the, the, the mechanism of, of big government and intelligence agencies run amok – back then, how they have modernized and become even more vicious and uh, clandestine. Well, I think your observation is, is very correct, and that is that it's continuum. Nothing really has changed in terms of their goals, their objectives, their strategies, their tactics, their ideology. It's all very, very much the same. But the thing that has changed drastically, and that is the technology. And of course, their ability to to uh, perpetuate mass surveillance, track people's every motion, every thought. I mean, Stalin and, uh, and Mao Zedong would have given anything if they had that kind of technology because they were trying to do the same thing. They, they had spies, block spies, people in every block in the city. You, I've talked to a lot of refugees that have come from behind the Iron Curtain and this was true in Cuba, it was true in, in Russia, it was true in every fully blown communist country. It was well known that in every block at least there was one, there was somebody who was a spy and they would pretend to be anti-government just to find out who would be sympathetic to their point of view and turn them in. And uh, so nobody could trust anything. They were just completely isolated and they wouldn't even talk to each other. It was a horrible 
social system to be under, but they just knew that somehow or other they, they would thought they thought they'd be talking to their closest friend, but who knows their closest friend might have been compromised hmm. because even even these block spies and they had a special name it's escaping me at the moment, but uh, the um, the spies let's just call them that also were fearful because they knew that periodically they would be tested by people who would deliberately reveal anti-government uh, attitudes, but they were working for the government just to find out if the spy would turn them in. So they, even the spies were being spied upon. Jeez. And, uh, and it, it worked pretty well, but nothing compared to what they're rolling out today with your, every smartphone doing far more than just tattling on your neighbor or even your, your parents or your brothers and sisters and uncles. Uh, no, they, they, they get it right off of your own, your, your smartphone and off your computer <laughs> directly. They don't need to, uh, to rely on spies anymore. So the, the technology is there, the technology for, for eliminating people through chemical warfare, pandemics, or, or so-called viruses, toxic pandemics, uh, eliminate them through toxins in the air and the food supply and, and electronic uh, weapons. And I mean, the, the technology is so far advanced it's in incredible. That's why I say that um, Stalin and Mao Zedong would have given anything to have that kind of technology at their hands. So that's my answer to your question: is it's the technology that's changed, but nothing else? Yeah, I guess I guess everything. It's always the fashion, the fashion yeah. of the day, the more, more so than the the intent of of the the human beings that that are all uh, that are all out there for working toward that goal and i guess the, what you're talking about there is another thing that i wanted to bring up in your past work from um and it's so funny how they, they try to they've tried in the past to equate john birch society activity to the communist infiltration because in the late 60s one of the more famous and enduring pieces of work that you did was a um was a series of, of, of video lectures about the communist infiltration and and how they were going to um, it, it's very prophetic stuff how they were going to use social discord especially to be able to um, the pit the races against each other black versus white we know that that has ex expanded to male versus female now they're trying to erase the differences between men and women altogether and uh, really uh, 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 I don't know double down on transhumanism as we're coming into this these later phases here but as far as social discord goes we've got friends that have disowned themselves from people we have sons that are turning in their fathers because they were in washington dc during january 6th and things like that so as far as the tattling goes that's big but going yeah. on to social discord and and race war just for a second because i mean th this this week there's curf there's now curfews in being uh, put out there in big left-wing cities all across the country uh, because there's just violent, it's violence. It's, a mi it's mostly minority youth that are committing wanton acts of violence. And as you have said in the, in the uh, years ago, the real thing is they want to be able to disrupt one group of people to make sure that there is violence and then retaliation because through that retaliation comes the need for the state to come on in and again commandeer more responsibilities and rights over everybody else. What do you think about where we are right now as far as escalating violence in the name of so-called civil rights and everything else? Well, I think we're at or very near the final stage. About, that needs a little definition. What is final stage? I don't know how you cut that. 
sharply enough, but uh, it, it, we're, we're near the end game, and the end game is where society and uh, civil order fall apart, and uh, you have real, real trouble in your streets by that and in your homes. By that I'm talking about not only violence, which is orchestrated, by the way, there are some, some fools that get dragged into it, but all of these riots, so-called, are led. I think it's pretty obvious. Um, there, there are very professional uh, leaders that go into these areas, usually the poorer neighborhoods, and they, they rouse people up, and they look for people who are potentially violent. You know, they give them drugs, they, they give them alcohol, they give them pep talks, they give them rides on buses. They all come in buses. They don't all just walk into town and meet in the corner. They're, it's all organized. They, the media never shows you the, the uh, 20 or 30 buses lined up over in a back street waiting for the riot to be over so they can take the rioters back to the places where they came from. But it's uh, once you get the, the understanding that these things are organized and they're not even spontaneous, that changes a lot of things because we realize it's, it's theater. And you, then you, the next question is, well, what's the theater for? And I think the ultimate theater and the ultimate objective of the theater, I should say, is just to put people into such a state of fear and uncertainty that they will accept any absurd motion, any, any movement, any solution so-called, like martial law. They'll say, oh, bring on martial law, please, hurry. You know, there are people burning the house down the street. They're going to be at my house next. And hurry, let's get those, let's get those soldiers out there. And uh, so everybody wants to get the government out there to to arrest all these bad people, and they don't realize that when the government comes to start arresting people, it'll be they themselves who are arrested, and the bad ones won't even be around. So um, to answer your question, I think that the main the main name of the game right now is just to perpetuate that, that fear to the point where uh, there seems to be justification for martial law, and then they'll, they'll deliver martial law, and that'll be, that will be the end game. So, I, 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 you know, in a, in a couple of minutes here, I'm going to start peppering you with some questions that came from the audience. And there's a lot of great questions, and there's a lot of people that are asking the same things. Of course, there's a lot of questions about the Federal Reserve, uh, but there's also quite a few questions about Yuri Bezmenov because of your famous interviews that you did with him. And uh, almost all of those questions have to do with asking you whether uh, which phase do you, of the, um, the, the subversion of a nation do you see us in right now? I'd have to imagine that we are in we are deep inside of the normalization phase because you interviewed him in the in the 1980s. But what would you say in in your recollection of that conversation with Yuri? Where are we on those uh, on that that ladder of of uh, social subversion? Well, yeah, I think we're just a, we're at the doorway of the fourth and final stage, which is normalization, as he called it, or as the KGB called it, I should say. And so that's what I'm talking about. Normalization would be martial law. That's when the tanks are in the street and everybody's hovering in their houses uh, waiting for orders, being told what to do, and they're prepared to do it immediately without hesitation. That's normalization. That's what Yuri was talking about. And you can see it. It's at our door. We're at the doorstep right now for that. All they need is some kind of a trigger. It seems like maybe these later riots are the beginning of, of that kind of a trigger. If you can imagine, now I'm not trying to just say all these scary things, but this is what they're planning. So we've we got to talk about it. 
So um, it's not just uh, scary things. They, I mean, like riots, but um, what happens when the water goes out? You know, mm-hmm. what happens when somebody dumps some really toxic stuff in the water supply in a large metropolitan area? I mean, you can, you can wipe out a whole city or at least care, scare people and t- tell them that the water supply is poisoned, whether it is or not, they're not going to drink it. And uh, then what, what, what are they going to do for water? And what happens when the toilets don't flush? And what happens, you know, you know th- th- these questions. That's when panic hits in and people will be turning to the government to help them and to tell them what to do. Well, the government's all ready to tell them what to do. And basically, that can be summed up with the phrase, get into the truck. Hmm. Get, get into, into the, the truck. Yeah. And then they'll take you someplace to a FEMA camp or maybe they'll move you to some part of the country that you never heard of before. They'll move you into somebody else's house or you say, what about my house? I'll stay there. No, no, we've got your house already taken care of. We've got, a, we've got 44 people in your house. You had too much space. And that has happened in communist countries before. But um, that's, the, that's the final stage. That's the mop-up stage. And that's what Yuri was talking about when he said normalization. And that's when sheer, sheer power, military force comes into play. And in general, people are thankful for it because they're scared out of their wits of the consequences if they don't accept it. It's a brilliant strategy. It's, oh. it's absolutely fantastically brilliant. It is. It is um, maniacal, diabolical, but brilliant at the same time because it's just yeah. it's mastery over the human animal and, and understanding how they respond in certain stress situations and and to be able to conquer them without in many ways firing a shot. Now that actually brings me to a, another question that's just popping up right now because the last time you were on with me, you expressed your great satisfaction with your life's work and, and hope in future generations and and um, and how you know at, at night you're really just uh, you're, you're happy with what's with what's going on in despite of how the world is. But in the here and now, how do you deal on a day-to-day basis with being confronted by all of the things that you warned about? or saw these things happening three generations ago. Um, what, what is your way of, of dealing with stuff that is pretty stressful to see come to fruition? Is it religion? It is, is it work? It, what is it? You mean how, how I deal with all that? Yeah, how do you, how do you work through it? What, what's, a, what's a good way to, of dealing with and dispelling that stress of seeing all of this uh, craziness come to fruition that you've been warning about for so long? Well, I wish I had an answer for that question. I sometimes wonder at that myself, uh, because uh, I've gone through phases, of course, you can imagine, especially in the early days. I, I was uh, very tempted at a couple of points to, to bug out, you know, let's, let's get out of the city, let's uh, go into the country, get the guns and groceries, go into the mountains and let, this, let civilization fall around us and we'll come back and pick up the pieces and so forth. Uh, then I realized that's not, that's what they want us to do. They want us to drop out of the battle, go into the mountains. They know that we can't survive in the mountains, but they want us to think that we can. So we come back in, we've uh, lost our momentum, we've lost our self-confidence, we've lost our assets, uh, we're, we're more dependent than ever, and so forth. I, so I've gone through these phases, and I've seen other people make those mistakes, and um, I guess the real answer is that I, I guess I'm an old war horse. Uh, they say that horses get used to explosive sounds and they're not, they're not too uh, frightened by them after a while. 
they just get used to them. And I've talked to a few veterans who say that, they, you know, they were in a really hard battle during World War II, and some of them in the Korean War. And they have a similar story that after a while, you just sort of get hardened to it. And you figure, well, it's either my turn or it isn't, so let's just go out and find out. And they just sort of calm down and, uh, and just move ahead, do what they have to do. I'm kind of in that mode. I don't dwell too much on the negative side. I know it could end all very badly. But I keep thinking about those positive things because I realize that out of this chaos, we're, we're living in a, in a really a wonderful time if you think about the opportunity to, to make a serious change for the long-term future. There's no doubt in my mind that, that had they continued on a more steady and slow pace, that they would have succeeded in achieving their goal because there was no opposition to speak of. People didn't feel it. It was like the old story about, you know, the frog being thrown into the pot of hot water, boiling water. And if, if it's boiling water when they're thrown in, they jump out. But if it's gradually warming up, they'll stay in and be boiled alive. Well, I don't know that that's a true story, but it's a good analogy. And because uh, I could see America being boiled alive slowly, slowly. And nobody was jumping out of the pot. And, but now I see people wanting to, and doing, jumping out of the pot. They're ready to, to do something about it. So I think that's a, that's a very positive sign, even though it's, it's a horrible situation that has occurred that makes that happen. Nevertheless, I think we have enough people now that if they get organized and work together and with a little bit of help from the divine and their own resolve and, and dedication, we could still turn this thing around, but not without paying a huge price. That's, if you think it's going to be easy or that there will be no, no price to pay, that's a mistake. But the fact that we have, I think, a, a building, upwelling of determination and understanding for the first time in American history of what's really going on, that uh, we, we actually could come to a place where we could turn this thing around. I'm looking for defectors to come out from the other side. I think that's the, the Achilles heel that nobody wants to talk about. You know, the, the communists used to say to us, and by us I mean back in the 60s, we who called ourselves anti-communists, the communists would say, yeah, we're going to take over America. We'll fall into our hands like overripe fruit. We will not have to fire a shot. You would just become communist and so forth. And they, we say, well, why is that? They said, because we have your children. We're recruiting your children. And you will never come over. We'll have to get rid of you. But we've got your children. Okay, I remember that very well. Now I'm beginning to think, hmm, I think we're getting their children now. I think the children of some of these uh, one-worlders are beginning to see that they're born into something that they don't really want. Um, Yuri Bezmianov was an example of that. He was a KGB kid. He was, his father was a, a famous general in the, in the Soviet Union. He had everything. He drove around in, in the luxury of limousines and lived high on the hog. He had everything. And yet he saw the depravity of the system and risked his life to get out of it. So there was a defector, and I think there are lots of those out there who are ready and increasingly getting more ready to defect. You can see it happening right now in the medical profession. More and more doctors who up until very recently were all solidly behind, you know, the vaccines and what, well, how dare you question modern medicine as the finest system in the world. Now, everywhere you look, you see doctors popping up and saying, oh my gosh, we were wrong. This is a business model. This is a, nothing but a money-making machine. They don't want to cure anybody. 
they want to treat everybody forever. They don't want to cure them. They want them buying our drugs and so forth. I'm hearing doctors say that more and more. So I think I think there's a, a side to this that hasn't shown up yet, and that is the defectors from the other side are going to start showing up in massive numbers. And when that happens, I think we could see the whole thing crumble on the other side. What very well said. That that was uh, tremendous. Yeah, and I I I'm I'm hoping that aside from the fact that. Uh, yeah, they made they made this kind of totalitarian uh, worldview look very very cozy and liberal. as more libertine than liberal uh, for for the children of the last couple of generations. I'm hoping that this new generation uh, defects from the the standpoint that you know usually kids just love what their parents hate, and so many parents are are uh, are left wing uh, morons at this point that perhaps that just makes. Uh, uh, conservative, individualist, pro-liberty thinking, punk rock again, and uh, yeah, that <laughs> happened. <laughs> I, Liz, anything goes in our favor at that point. But just yeah. wonderful. And there's a few things that you said there that I have to expand on in the um, in the coming couple of minutes. But I want to throw some other questions that I have from audience members now. And the first one comes from a a listener of ours who asks, if you could remake Anarchy USA today, what subjects and news topics would you pick and why? Hmm. Well, I don't come with any ready-made answer to that question. That's fine. I think I'd have to go back and look at the whole documentary from beginning to end and see if I could find something. I'm sure there are things that could have been done better. I don't think there were any serious errors in uh, concept. Uh, that was, I think that's been proven already by the history that's followed it. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm going to say at the present time I can't think of anything except maybe use a little better productive technique. <laughs> you know, uh, if I could interject, if I can interject, I'd have to say that from from being able to observe all the stuff that you've put out in the past, and I have not seen at, uh, nearly everything you've done. That that's for sure. Uh, as I as I described it in the opening here, so much of what you've done, or, and people like you have done, who have seen you know you've seen the path that we were on, the trajectory we were on, uh, it comes off as prophetic. I think that the only thing that you could really even expand upon at this point would just be accredited to uh, you know uh, hindsight being twenty twenty. <laughs> Maybe some things that you couldn't never have known about, like you said before. Uh, the 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 name of the game and the objective has always been the same, but the technology has changed. You know, in 1969, you could not have projected everything, every little gizmo and gadget we're playing with right now in 2023. So I I, I really don't know where you could have improved upon or done anything uh, to to really change things without really having a, a a look into the future, which is impossible. Well, yeah, because we don't know which way which way it'll fall. Will it fall on the side of tyranny or liberty? But it's going to fall. Mm-hmm. It can stand where it is now. So, yeah, I think that's true. I don't, I don't see anything that I recall regretting having put into that film. I see a lot of things that I regret that I didn't do a better job than I did, but that, not that it was an erroneous direction, no misinformation or anything like that. It was all, well, how can you miss? It comes right from the the horse's mouth, you know? Exactly. Take everything right from their literature. 
exactly. And I, and I think this next one is uh, is going to be right up your uh, your alley, right in your wheelhouse. A friend of the show, Grace. Grace says, why do you believe, Mr. Griffin, uh, the founding families of the Federal Reserve chose Jekyll Island of all places? Why did Rockefeller have a cottage with an Indian mound right in front of it? <laughs> well, those are two questions, really, in one. Jekyll Island was chosen because it was a private resort where many, if not most, of those characters actually already had resorts. They already had, they called them cottages there. And they wanted to get away from the prying eyes of all those newspaper reporters in New York City. So they decided to go out in the country, out in, or up north to uh, Jekyll Island and the privacy of their own uh, island. And so that the, the choice of Jekyll Island is no mystery at all, and in my view. It's just a logical thing to do, and they could... They could tell, as they did, they told everybody they were just, who asked and they knew they were going. They told those few people that, well, we're just going to do some duck hunting and smoke some good cigars and uh, some good whiskey and play some poker. You know, that was kind of the image they wanted to portray. So the choice of the island was uh, logical. Now, the Indian mound and the, uh, and the satanic symbols and all that stuff that has been surfacing about what existed on Jekyll Island before these characters moved to it, I don't really know how to answer that. I've, I've looked at that information. Uh, I find it fascinating. I believe that there were that there were was an Indian burial ground there because they seem to have good historical data to it. But when it comes to the occult connection, I don't see that. I mean, it could be there. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not. It's just that I think it might be just an elaboration on some already mysterious things about gravestones or grave, uh, grave burial places from uh, old times where certain um, Indian tribes existed. And one of the tribes, as I recall, wasn't even from North America, it was from Europe someplace. Mm. And the big speculation is, how did that get here? So when you have an unanswerable question like that, oh, it's just a it's good pea soup for all kinds of questions. Well, maybe it was had some meaning that we don't understand. And now I'm not trying to poo-poo the occult connection there. Uh, I don't know that um, that uh, any ceremonies were conducted in the Rockefeller uh, home uh, over that uh, so-called altar that's maybe buried underneath the house. I don't know about that. I just have no opinion. I, I, I just have to remain neutral and say... We'll wait and see. Well, that's fine. That, that's totally fine. And I, you know, I have I have a couple other things along that lines that I I can't wait to th- uh, throw your way. But first, since we're talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve, here's another question that came in from an audience member. Now, 90%, Mr. Griffin, of the questions that came in from around the world, they were about the future of the United States dollar. But this one I thought was a little bit more uh, unique in that it's asking about, the, here, here, I'll just read it to you. Uh, Mr. Griffin, it seems the legs are falling off of the original creature from Jekyll Island. Do you see another creature of the same ilk rising to replace it, say within the context of bricks? So not not necessarily the, the digital dollar, but do you think that something like the bricks uh, 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 nations that are getting together right now, um, do you trust what's forming there? Well, that people. Hold on, hold on. I, I, you just you you blotted out for a second there. What was your response? I don't trust any of them. Okay. Because they're all after money and power, and I don't think it would make too much difference which group uh, was dominant. 
I, I think all the competition from Russia and China and the BRICS groups, competition against uh, the Federal Reserve and the American hegemony, hegemony uh, is that they're, they're jealous. They want that. They, it isn't that they're against it in, in principle. It's just that they want to do it for a while. I think it's time for the U.S. to let go and let them do it. So I don't think any, there are any good guys out there. Having said that, I, I believe from what I can see that the legs are not falling off of the present system. They're being thrown off. The people at the Federal Reserve, and it's, and it's really bigger than the Federal Reserve. This is the international financial community. Um, they've decided in the last few years that the future for them is digital bank currency. They wanted digital currency for decades. They, they called it cashless society. That means digital. And um, I mean, we have more or less a cashless society right now with uh, credit card money. That's you, you can't uh, you can't put your credit card in, under your mattress and think that it's going to be any good necessarily ten years from now. So it's uh, we've already got a, a cashless society, a digital society, I should say, but not cashless. So the, the point I'm driving at is the, these guys that had the plan, they want a cashless society. And so we have to understand what that means. That means that you cannot escape one currency to another one. It's, if you don't like the U.S. dollar or the yen or the British pound or something, and you think you, another currency is better, you can go trade in your dollars for the yen or the other currency. There's always cash out there. Every nation has its own currency, and they, none of them may be any good, but at least you can have privacy. You can have a whole bunch of them in your mattress if you want. Those uh, dollar bills and hundred-dollar bills, you can store a lot of them and be fairly independent in your life because you've got money, and money is power. And if, if you've got money, you can sort of do any whatever you want to do if you have enough of it. So the idea of having money that you can hold in your hand, stick in your pocket, put in your mattress, put in your bank account, and it's yours, that's pretty important to this concept called liberty, to do what you want to do. Now, if all of that is taken away and you don't have anything, and all you have is a currency that is issued by the banks, which is the case here, they call it you know, central bank digital currency, um, and that's what it is. They may have a national connection to it, like U.S. or the U.K. or something, but let's not kid ourselves. It's definitely the bank issuing it, not the, not the government's. And so if that's all there is, that it's a one-world one currency, and it's all done through computers, and you've got an account, and uh, the money doesn't even belong to you, it belongs to the issuance, uh, to the issuers, I should say. Uh, that means the banks, it's the bank's money, and you get to use it as long as you follow your directions. They'll say, you must spend this much money by um, December 31st, otherwise you lose it. Well, what do you mean? You lose it. It's your money, right? No, it's not your money. It's their money. That's why they can tell you to spend it by um, by the end of the year or lose it, because it's their money and not yours. Now, if they don't like what you do, if you what you say, or if, if they heard this program, they surely would cut us off and say, "Well, we don't like what you're doing. You're not, you're not a good social. You're not a team player. You're making waves. You're a problem." They just cut us off. We won't have any money. And this is what they this is what they really have in mind. This is why they want the cashless society, so that we will be dependent upon somebody else, meaning them, uh, to be able to buy a lollipop. We couldn't even go out and sit in the corner with a tin cup, begging for money for uh, 
for a, a sandwich or something because the, nobody else has got anything to put into that tin cup. Hmm. The money disappears, it's all digital. This is what they want. So now the question is, what's going on? Is this being done by the powers that be that we like to call the New World Order people, the globalists? Or is it um, being done because of competition by competitive groups? In my view, I don't really see an awful lot of difference. Yes, there is competition within the larger group, but this is being done on a global scale. All of those countries are involved in this movement. And I think they work together, they're manipulating, they're manipulating with each other, they're vying with each other for dominance, but it's all, they're all coming together in what they hope will be a universal global system. And as far as you and I are concerned, we will be out. And that is the, that's the goal that these bankers have been trying to achieve now for, I'm going to say, about 150 years. Hmm. Now, um, you know, you're, I, switching gears just, um, just slightly, your work on ancient biblical history sometimes takes a back seat to your more famous presentations about the Federal Reserve, the Carol Quigley apologetics, all that stuff. But um, taking into account everything that we were just talking about with currency and where it's going, whether or not the legs are falling off or the legs are being strategically replaced and we're just going into new planned phases of this, uh, this, this, this global plan, um, how much of what are we living through today do you believe has an unseen spiritual element, especially when it comes to biblical prophecy? Um, because we, we talk a lot about the physical and, and whatnot, and, and often is, un, uh, is overlooked is the metaphysical. But you, you have not shied away from that in your, in your, uh, in your life, and you've already in, in this, uh, this episode even made, made reference to how uh, we, we should be open to a little bit of divine help, too, along the way, hopefully. Well, yeah, I believe that because I believe that uh, this world is far more complicated than the material that we can see. Uh, but that's just a belief. Like, you know, others have different beliefs. And whether I'm right or wrong doesn't have too much bearing on whether the decisions we make today are good or bad because we could still live through hell uh, with either one of the interpretations that we have to choose from. So that's a roundabout way of saying I don't know. Um, and I hesitate even to get into a, a great uh, public discussion on it because people have such deep convictions on this thing. It seems like the more mysterious something is, the more important it is, the deeper the convictions are, and the easier it is to offend somebody if you happen to not have the same view. You know, that's true of your nationality, to your country, my country, good or bad, you know, or to your religion, to your God, and uh, your family even. Where well, you have strong alliances and convictions that, are, that you get from your childhood where you don't even understand why you have those convictions, but you've got them. Um, the feelings are so strong that if, if I were to say something that would be different or markedly different from somebody's convictions, they might get really ticked off at me. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it, not that that worries me. I mean, I'm not here to, to be loved by everybody, but I'm hoping not to cause divisions and conflict between people who should be working together, regardless of where they stand on these issues. Now, I'm not suggesting that Satanists and Christians work together, no, but I am suggesting that people of many different faiths can work together, and in order for that to happen, 
um, it would be better if we, when we're meeting for discussions on what to do about world affairs, we kindly sort of just not get into religious differences and just leave that alone for other occasions and for other groups and other, you know, churches perhaps. Maybe that's the best place for such discussions. So that is by way of my hesitancy to go on to this, but I will go one step further and just say that um, I am very um, concerned at the possibility that, um, I don't know how to say this, that the concept of uh, the end times, which is so universally believed by most uh, Christians, I think, maybe most or many, um, is, um, is, is a concept that could be exploited by our enemy. In fact, I've seen that done. I think that uh, our enemy would like us to do nothing better than to say, well, no point in fighting this. It's all going to happen. It's, it's prophesied in the Bible. So you're just wasting your time trying to stop it. Just go, you know, confess your sins and be a good person and you'll be airlifted up, and when all the tragedy comes, you'll be okay. And I see that as a, as a terribly dangerous point of view. Not that it might not be true, could be, but I know that our enemy would, in fact, I, talk, I talked to Yuri Besmian about that, and he said, oh yeah, yeah, we said, we, in the KGB, we, we encourage that kind of thinking. In fact, we encourage the people that go over to India and get all wrapped up in the gurus and everything. Any, anything we can convince people any reason we can convince people to drop out of the fight yeah. and wait for something supernatural to happen. He said, you can count on it. We'll be there. We'll be directing it, and we'll be funding it. So that is the thing I just yeah. want to throw out for other people to consider that, because I think it's possibly one of the strongest weapons that our enemy has. Oh, it's, it, I, you saying that right there uh, gives me goosebumps, because this is something we have talked about a lot. Number one, infighting is such a, uh, you have a cult-like cohesion on the, um, the the statist side of things, whether it be, I mean, anybody who just believes that government's role is to have a hand in regulating our lives from cradle to grave. There is a, there is a, a, a cult-like cohesion there. But uh, anybody who is outside of that and is uh, being skeptical and, and wants to be a little bit more on the, um, I don't know, the dissident side of things. The infighting is incredible. Um, it's, it's nearing sectarianism uh, in, in many ways. Uh, you know, it, uh, all Christian denominations are always, uh, are always d- discounting uh, each other or disqualifying, disqualifying each other in one way or another because of one person has a the better idea than others. One person has a better interpretation of the Bible or another book or another than than other people, and it's um, that in itself is very disconcerting to see, especially when everybody should just be um, trying to figure out how do we maintain uh, the, the you know the the earth as as a, a common place for us all to figure things out and try to lead good prosperous lives. And uh, and then, but the other thing, when you start bringing up Yuri Bezmenov and the whole idea of uh, leaning on some sort of a end times, coming end times scenario where we're just, uh, we're we're running out the last seconds on the clock here and the rapture is coming. Now, it, it very may well be. But in the meantime, I see so many people relinquishing uh, responsibility to act 
when the the chance is right there in front of us and it it reminds me of what everything that we've learned about the mind war techniques that were created by our government during the vietnam war to make sure that somebody's that that uh, a target nation a target population has uh given up before uh the the time to fight has even to, to win a war before it's even been declared and a lot of that stuff is very disconcerting and i when when you mentioned it and you you articulated it in that way uh I, we see that a lot for people are just taking their hands off the steering wheel here and just waiting for um you know uh, the revelations to play out before us and and not to say that a lot of things that we we see today especially as we're drifting toward the rise of artificial intelligence and transhumanism and and uh, digital money and the chips the microchips subdermal microchips in the brain everything there is a lot that screams biblical prophecy and end times no doubt about it but uh, a lot of people use that to relinquish the responsibility to act when um when uh, when it's it's appropriate and uh, i that i think that's just very profound that you you brought that up there well it's a big issue but it's a delicate one and as i say i'm a, i'm always um, worried about talking about it because i don't want people to get, get into uh, disagreement with me or whether they agree or disagree it's not important to me but i just want to throw it out because it's something to think about and to be cautious about mm-hmm. i do know for a fact that our opponents play upon this and if there's any movement, uh, whether it's an Indian guru movement or, uh, or it's a Christian fundamental movement that's preaching, don't, uh, you know, don't question your political authorities. Stay out of politics. Uh, you know, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar and so forth and just stay out of politics. I, I know deep in my heart that that is being funded and encouraged by our enemy. So that's all I can say on that topic. Well, thank you so much for your your opinions on that. Um, uh, outside of that, more so on your, and uh, I know we're we're running out of time here. I don't want to keep you more than an hour. You've you've already given us so much. Um, outside of that, your work, your published work on Noah's Ark. Um, what what do you to this day believe is the importance of of ascertaining the location of Noah's Ark? or even confirming that it exists, it wasn't a parable or, or uh, anything like that. What, uh, what was always driving, for those, of you, for those of us out here who have not read your full published works on that, what was always driving um, your, your research into the finding of religious artifacts um, like the Ark? Well, I'm, I'm pausing because I have to sort of replay the tape on that one. I had very little interest in it in the beginning, but uh, I was approached by Donald Patton, who wrote a couple of books on it, The Biblical Flood and the Ice Epic. And I was intrigued by the, the uh, relationship to ancient Earth history. It was not a religious question to me, because uh, I didn't see that my faith uh, in a creator or what, whatever in that category made any difference whether there was Noah's Ark or not. Uh, it, it is what it is. But I was intrigued by the fact that, by golly, it, it looks like it might actually exist. Could that be proved? And if that's the case, what does that tell us about ancient Earth history? What does it tell us about the origins of man? And so forth. And, and uh, so I didn't have a, a theological motivation at any time to do it. I just wanted to find out, well, what do the facts say? What do they, where do they lead us, you know? 
And um, now Donald Patton, of course, had a very strong biblical uh, motivation for dealing with the topic. And um, but he agreed when we started the project that we would sort of leave that out of it and let people figure that part out for themselves and just talk about what do the, the geological facts tell us. So that was my main interest. And the deeper I got into it, the more intriguing it became because I realized that there were so many, so many pointers that suggested that that artifact out there on, on the slopes of, uh, you know, the mountain about 17 miles away from Mount Ararat, not on Mount Ararat, but 17 miles away, looked like that was the real thing. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a puzzler. You put a puzzle in front of me and I, I stop whatever I'm doing and I have to, have to work the puzzle out. So I stopped everything and I had to figure out the, uh, the puzzle. Was this or was this not Noah's Ark? So that was it. It was just mainly curiosity, and and um, and then I started getting into the opposition of it. And interestingly enough, it was the religious opposition. Uh, it was you would think that um, you would think that uh, the religious bodies would be curious to know the truth, but they weren't. They they wanted to know the, not religious bodies in general, but some of them wanted to know anything that, that reinforced their preconceived idea about the Ark, but were violently opposed to anything that contradicted their preconceived idea about the Ark. You know, for example, was it made of wood? Well, that's a matter of faith to many people, because they think it says it was made of wood, it made of gopher wood. Well, that turns out not to be quite the case, but anyway, to them it was a point of, it was a point of, um, Belief. It was a point of salvation to even question it. So they couldn't look at the actual facts of what Gopher Wood was. So I found that interesting. It was sort of tiptoeing around all that kind of stuff when we did the film because I didn't want to get people angry at each other and arguing over whose whose Bible was the best and so forth. We just stuck with the with the scientific provable facts. Mm. Well, uh, it's always very interesting. Things like that, lost treasure, especially relics. Um, you know, the, the search for, I, I know as uh, someone who is as uh, learned as you are with uh, history, especially um, hidden history, the search for religious artifacts for occulted purposes of hopefully attaining world domination, that is as uh, as old as time. We, we've heard about special uh special convoys to try to find the Ark of the Covenant. There's plenty of, you know, Indiana Jones, plenty of great, great movies made about it. Uh, the searching for the Spear of Destiny. Do you believe, uh, one last question about the, the Ark, uh, Noah's Ark, do you believe that attempts to locate and recover Noah's Ark is part of that, uh, part of, uh, part of that, um, uh, I don't know, that, that mission to, to try to, to, to gain spiritually charged relics and in, in pursuit of, of greater power? I think there's some element to that, but um, again, this is something I'm almost almost uh, afraid to answer honestly because I don't want to get anybody mad. Okay, don't get, you, you don't for, you didn't forget about me then. Hey, I don't want you to get uh, you in trouble no, then. No, <laughs> but I think, I think it's an important uh, issue. So I'll say it the way it is because I've, I've already said it before, so I'm on record. Um, I think there are a lot of people involved in the Ark Search um, story going back many decades who are doing, who have done so for their own personal aggrandizement. 
uh, they wanted to be the head of a of a mission to go discover the ark and bring back bring it back and so forth. There was one guy that even brought back a piece of wood turned out to be phony, but he said it was a Noah's ark piece. And they wanted to raise money to bring it back for one of the uh, world. Uh, what do they call the World Convention? What do they call the World World Fair? World Fair, yeah. Uh, and and it would be you know a big big money raiser. And um, so anyway, uh, but they didn't want to hear any facts. They just wanted to. Uh, they were looking for things that supported their um, their scenario. And I I found that was was terribly disappointing because some of these people offered themselves as men of God. And uh, I came away with the feeling that, well, maybe not so much. Hmm. Uh, now, don't ask me to say which ones. I'll oh, no, no. no, no. I, I'm not going to figure that out for themselves. Yeah, I'm not going to push you that far. Uh, yeah. I, I think what you've given us so far is, is, is wonderful. Because I honestly, I had not even thought about uh, Noah's Ark and all the expeditions that uh, I've even seen in my life so far. I, every once in a while, every couple of years, when I was growing up in the 90s or something, there was always a front page of a magazine somewhere that, that speculated, have we finally found the Ark? Uh, you know, what is this satellite image showing us from over here in this area of the world and it, that was something that was always very uh, you know just constantly simmering in the background and I feel like I haven't w seen it in a while so with you on the air tonight I wanted to ask you that and you know um, well, you know the funny thing about that is and funny I guess in quotes is that it has nothing to do um, with um, Christendom I mean Noah's Ark is uh, this, uh, the story of Noah's Ark is in the Quran and and all the ancient books it's and yet, uh, a lot of people in the Christian faith feel that it's it's unique, it's uniquely a Christian symbol, and it isn't. The, the Muslims, uh, in fact, they're in Turkey. They in in their uh, in their holy book, it, uh, it's the story of Noah's Ark, and in the Torah, uh, there's the story of Noah's Ark, and how many other documents and stories of Noah's Ark. So it's it's not related to any one particular religion, and some. Pastors are very upset by that when you bring that fact up. Oh no, it's definitely, it's definitely a Christian symbol. But I don't. Of course, it's not. Well, you you would think that something like that would be a a wonderful overlap that uh, that gives it more credence. Um, that that's where that's where my my first uh, my knee jerk reaction is that that uh, a shared story like that is um, is actually gives it a lot more uh, legitimacy and um, absolutely yeah it's, it's, a, it's a universal story there's something something that predated Christ by thousands of years wonderful well listen I, I you know uh, mr. Griffin this has been a wonderful uh, discussion I would love to have you I know you said you are going to be in Des Moines in August of this year I would love to have you back sometime over the summer because not only to to hype up what's going to be happening in in August at the red pill Expo but we there's so much that we haven't touched I mean first of all your your work exposing the cancer industry and persecution of those who have offered alternative paths to treatment I I'd love to talk to that about uh, uh, talk with you about that. There's so many other things there too, and who knows what happens in the next four months? I mean, seven months has changed the world in in quite a few ways, and and here we are again. So um, I, I thank you for all the time you gave us tonight. Well, it's a pleasure to to have occasion to reach back in my memory and talk about some of these things, 
And if it sounds like I was a little bit slow in recalling, it's because I was. Some of these things go way, way back in time, and my time machine is not ticking quite as, as easily as it used to. But it's fun to go back and remember thoughts and impulses and impressions and some of these things as they occurred at the time. So I welcome the chance, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, you know, it's funny you say that, because as, you were, as you're, you're recalling all these things and we're talking tonight, I'm just saying to myself, my gosh, I, I hope I have the recall and the sharpness that you, that, uh, you do at your age if I, uh, God willing, get to your age, because I, I did not think at all, wow, he's, uh, he's really slowing down. It's not, it's yeah. not happening. You're, you're a wonderful, wonderful guy to talk to, and thanks for all your hard work, and, and we'll talk soon. Is there anything else that you want to plug or any URLs, any websites you want to direct people to before we get off? No, I just think if they want to, if they want to access our bookstore, of course, that's, that's the only place we sell stuff. We sell books and recordings there, and that's realityzone.com. But for all the rest of the stuff we've got, we, just, we have nothing to sell. It's just all, all ideas and, and uh, controversies in many cases. And the best place to start that journey is at Red Pill. Uh, university.org. Okay, redpilluniversity.org and realityzone.com. G. Edward Griffin, I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank you for the time you gave us. Okay, thank you, Frank. All right, take care. See you later. All right, well, let's take a really quick break. An intermission. When we come back, I'm going to jump into your super chats, and maybe we'll go uh, into a a time machine again and listen to... uh, Mr. Griffin speaking in 1969 about uh, so many of the things that we're watching right now. Who knows if we have the time? It's uh, it's 8.30, 8.36, depending on what clock you're looking at. Thanks for the everything, all the wonderful company that you've given me so far. We will be right back. It's intermission time, folks. Time out. Press the like button. Thank you. Quite frankly. 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 Quite Quite frankly. 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 Quite So everybody watch, quite frankly, with Frank. 
you like that well we'll see we'll see how you liked it tina hagan on rockfin sent a tip thank you so much tina i hope you enjoyed yourself tonight let's get on over to quite frankly superchat.com and see what is brewing over there problematic will says the ark is a pre-christ figure if you uh, if you're in the ark, you're saved. If you ain't, you ain't. Period. Grace and peace, Frank and Franklies. There you go. Gotta get in that ark. Stostube. Wonderful to have you out there. Good Wednesday to you. Ken McNeil says so great to have Mr. Griffin back on the show. He's such a good soul like you, Frank. That's very kind of you. The momentum continues. Ken McNeil. Ken is a longtime supporter of the show, and he's always very inspirational and encouraging to me. I appreciate him, as I do many of you out there. And I gotta say, uh, I, you know, I was gonna bring it up until I was gonna bring it up after the intermission until Mr. Griffin um, apologized for his slow recall. I mean, if you're listening to that and you are. Um, how many times did you say to yourself, wow, this guy's over 90 years old. I forgot how old he is. He is, he is 91. I forget. Uh, this guy is over 90 years old and it's just so sharp. So sharp. Um, just terrific. I loved where all of those answers to those questions went. Uh, let's see here. Valsky says, just a token of our appreciation for your nightly program. Valsky and her hubby, Bob No Decaf. No Decaf over here too, Bob. I brewed a little bit. You know what I brewed tonight before I brought, I came on over here? I put it in my Dallas Cowboys thermos. I know. I packed my lunch in a brown bag. Gave myself a string cheese as well. But, um, I brewed... What is probably one of four remaining bags of the Quite Frankly Daily Roast, which is are just relics in themselves at this point. I almost don't want to drink them because that's all that there is. But we're looking into new uh, new avenues for coffee. Got a couple things we're working on. And um, it was good. And it gave me the sharpness that I needed tonight. I haven't even told my wife Jennifer yet. If you know what that's from, then you win. Uh, Q Cooper says, hey, Frank, have you heard of The Exorcist Files? It's a podcast recreating cases Father Carlos Martins dealt with and explaining how possessions happen and work. He may be an interesting guest. Send me an email. I've been looking for an exorcist for a long time now. Uh, for Just for me in general. Not just <laughs> as a uh, guest. And then Booze Spider Ahab says, I would love to win that book. But here, have some flan on me either way. Much love. Thank you. There's a Mexican restaurant around here that makes a, uh, a really a good Kahlua flan. 
Very nice of you, Booze Fighter. I appreciate you in a big way. All right, over on to Rumble. Let's see what's coming in over there. A couple of Rumble rants. This is from Christoa. It says, Christoa says, looks like you made it through the hellery of vasectomy videos, Frank. Thank goodness. I almost didn't get back. I almost didn't make it back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad I'm here with you tonight and, uh, and that everything's okay. Thank you for riding that out with me last night. Those are the nights. Last night, those are the nights I love. I come home and say that was a great conversation. Good stuff. It was relevant in a secular sense. What's going on around the world, uh, but also farther, far enough off the beaten path where it it takes us out of the the news cycle and just allows us to be human for a little bit. Free Dubs says G. Edward Griffin is amazing. So thankful that he could join us tonight. Love you, Frank. Thank you, Free Dubs. I'm grateful for it too, and I can't wait to have him back. Because, like I said before, you're talking about over 60 years of work. There's so many places you can go to, and I'd love to have him back sometime around maybe July, June, July. I want to get close enough to the Red Pill Expo so that it, it makes a really good promotion for it. If anybody is in that Des Moines, Iowa area, or if you're in traveling distance to that, like I said, it might be a lot easier for people to get to someplace like Des Moines, that's right in the center, than Montana, which is like, you know, up and to the left. Let's see. Anything else? No more Rumble Rants? Okay. Over to QuiteFrankly.tv, which it is Rabbit Hole Wednesday, ladies and gentlemen. Rabbit Hole Wednesday on QuiteFrankly.tv, the after hours. And tonight we are airing, I believe it was a 2021 episode of Quite Frankly, where we had Dr. Albert Taylor on with us. So you guys and gals can get up to date if you don't remember that or if you weren't around here for it, you'll have uh, you'll be nice and refreshed. And if in all along the way when you're watching that tonight, if you have any kind of follow-up question, yeah, put it in the chat room and talk with people who are watching alongside with you. I'll, I might be in there with you as well. But um, if you come up with any really awesome follow-up questions, send them to quite frankly podcast at gmail.com don't just waste them in the chat room send them to me because i'm considering all all uh, directions for tomorrow's continued conversation uh he's got a really interesting story dr albert taylor does nao thank you so much sean joe thank you jack attack says fafo lfg I, I probably just said something. Did I just say something perverted? I don't know. LFG means let's fu let's fucking go, right? What does Fafo mean? Frankly and Frank. Nothing. I don't know what the Fafo means. All right. Uh, Paulie says final stage is where the justice system gets busted and is sent to jail. Yes. I can't wait until the the justice system gets sent to jail. C. Blanche says, winning. We ain't giving shit up. NJSF says, what a home run of a show. Excellent interview with a smooth flow. I'm happy that you think so, NJSF. I really am. Thank you. Um, thank you, Sean Joe. Porpoiseful. Thank you. Chai Possum says, G. Edward Griffin. Awesome guest. Thank you, Frank. 
we're going to really cherish these these talks in the many years to come. TL Spud says, great interview of a legend. Kudos, Frank, you rock. I'm happy you enjoyed yourself. And Robert Sarns, sent, thank you for the phone. Sent a phone over. Oh, oh, Mark Swan says, Fafo means fuck around, find out. Okay. Well, there you go. It wasn't perverted. So I had my my direct link to the Urban Dictionary, Mark Swan, show up and let me know what I was missing out on. See, I'm not hip to all the uh, the new words. Take a listen to this and tell me that this is not prophetic. Here is G. Edward Griffin on the communist agenda. This is only about six minutes long. Might as well play it. This is from 1969. And here it is. It even says in the notes over here, G. Edward Griffin of the John Birch Society discusses the communist agenda for America. And remember, he just said that they were trying to say that John Birch Society was part of the communist infiltration. Listen to this. As early as 1928, the communists declared that the racial differences among our people constituted the weakest and most vulnerable point in our social fabric. By constantly probing and straining at this one spot, they calculated that eventually the cloth could be torn apart and that Americans could be divided, weakened, and perhaps even set against each other in open combat. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence, and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. That the communist blueprint calls also for white retaliation and violence in the black communities. It's a very important objective for the Communist Party. So far, they've only been able to involve a small percentage of our Negro people in this war of national liberation. The great majority want no part of it in any form. But the one sure way to change that is to have white vigilante groups striking into the Negro sections supposedly to seek revenge. Ladies and gentlemen, the plans and preparations for a communist revolution of force and violence are far advanced. The organization behind these preparations has almost unlimited financial resources, and it provides both training and leadership based upon years of experience in many other countries. Our enemies are deadly serious about their task, and it's nothing short of national suicide for us to continue to ignore their plans and their progress. The strategy of the proletarian revolution calls for the quiet conversion of our government into a communist regime, but under the banner of socialism. Now, what is socialism? He goes into it. Well, what is socialism? All right, let's define it. According to the dictionary, socialism is a political concept based upon the principle of government ownership and control of property, the means of production, and the avenues of commerce. Under socialism, those who run the government, and the communists are confident that in America they eventually will be the ones who do so, those who run the government will know who is to get something and who has to wait, and that represents control over human beings. What is all this to do with the communist revolution in America? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it has everything to do with it because the building of socialism is the communist revolution in America. It represents the process 
whereby our country can be moved gradually toward communism without the people even being aware of it. No matter what grievance we may have, real or imagined, no matter what national problems we may face, the communists seize upon these as excuses to build socialism. They have one and only one solution for all problems. More government, more government, and then more and more until it's total government. And forgive me for saying it one more time, total government is communism. How communists respond when they lose an argument. In 1943. When they, they lose an argument. I'm telling you, this is just, we see a lot of that these days. The following directive was issued from party headquarters to all communists in the United States. It read, when certain obstructionists become too irritating, label them after suitable buildups as fascist or Nazi or anti-Semitic and use the prestige of anti-fascist and tolerance organizations to discredit them. In the public mind, constantly associate those who oppose us with those names which already have a bad smell. The association will, after enough repetition, become fact in the public mind. Now, you can say, wow, this is amazing. It's just like he knew the future. No, he's, re he's reading from published works. And they deny that they published them. Or, they, uh, for example, whenever there's a leak these days that exposes some kind of very unsavory truth that nobody was supposed to know, that it was just supposed to be back-channel communications or whatever, uh, there's just a very, um, very controlled, I don't know, divert-your-eyes-away kind of a mentality. 2016, nobody was talking about what we saw inside those DNC leaks and the Podesta uh, emails and all that stuff. We just had the constant drumming of who leaked these? Who hacked these? Who committed this crime? No, 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 no. We're not going to talk about what's inside of them. Who committed this crime? And who could have benefited from this, the crime that was committed of this hack that never was? It's the it's just the same thing over and over. And I know some of you are thinking it as well. And I'm sure that if we had spoken a little bit longer uh, with uh, with Mr. Griffin, even he would would say that communism in itself is just a red herring. It is a uh, a tool to mop up a society. Those at the top of the pecking order don't really believe in any of this stuff that everybody that is de debating in the streets who think that they're going to get a few extra pennies added on to their EBT card every month, uh, they don't really believe in any of that shit at the top. It's a mechanism. It's a mechanism. And it burns out a lot of things. It burns out uh, ambition. It burns out human inspiration it burns out the cohesion of american families or any target groups families uh their faith it burns all that it levels out the human being so that they are such an empty void anything can come and fill that void and that's usually where the real belief system comes in now, what is the truth? The truth is a far superior weapon than deceit, he says. This is the last two minutes of this clip, and then we're just going to end. But because they are lying, it's possible to expose them. And this is their Achilles heel. Now, by comparison, we have nothing to hide, therefore we have no reason to lie. 
and we wouldn't want to even if we could. Truth is a far superior weapon than deceit. It's a weapon which is denied to them. And in the end, it will be the decisive weapon that destroys them completely. A world government based on collectivism. We get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have as far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. People like Hillary Clinton know, even at that elevated position, Hillary Clinton, you'd say, was one of the big movers and shakers. Compared to the Council on Foreign Relations, she's not. She's a small fish. And she knows that she's got to uh, get the approval of the CFR. I had a friend, Nick Rockefeller, okay, who was one of the Rockefeller family. The ultimate goal that these people have in mind is to create a one world government. And this is giving me straight from Rockefeller himself. This is what they want to accomplish. Not just any world government, but a world government based on the model of collectivism. In other words, big, powerful, centralized world government. Now, I, just, to, just to end there, just to end there, the CFR, of course, that is a that was the consolation prize for everyone that wanted the uh, the world government, the UN that we have right now, to have been established after World War One. But we still had way too many uh, patriotic people in the United States Senate, and that was not going to happen. So even after World War One, they say let's just do this League of Nations thing so that there's never a war again. Well, nope. That wasn't going to happen, so what do we do? That's when we started really seeing the consolidation in the media. The buying up of the media, the communist front groups, all that stuff, the Bolshevism that started being exported around the world, and the uh, the creation of things like the Trilateral Commission and the CFR, which was the uh, pretty much the, the, front, the front office of the Illuminati over here in the United States. So um, a long time coming. And we'll talk more about this and other things tomorrow and all throughout the week. I'm so happy that you were able to join me. Let me make sure I did not miss anything. Free Dub sent over a tip over on, quite frankly, superchat.com. And now he is entered into our drawing for the, the, the book. We have another Rumble rant that just came in from Jerry Coogan. Says, a classic episode? I hope so. I hope so. In a few years, I want to be able to say that we have a uh, G. Edward Griffin anthology of interviews that we can be proud of. Number two is down. Three coming up. Give me a couple of months and we'll, we'll get that going. Thank you over on QuiteFrankly.tv. Mazington says, part of the message of Fatima, Russia will spread her errors throughout the world. Yes. Only thing is that communism... Bolshevism wasn't a product of Russia. And now it, it has been, it has gone around the world, but uh, it, it's a fallacy to say that it, it was Russia's error. What took root over there? It was imported into Russia, conceived and imported into Russia. So there's a, a little bit of, I'm not 100% there, but I understand that when you think about the revolution, the October Revolution, 1917, uh, where we are talking about a domino that initially fell in Russia. And, of course, that was retaliation. That was retaliation in itself. Because the Tsar, um, I mean, at least Tsars before Nicholas, 
they were the um, they were they were the the wall upon which past attempts at forming world government in the 19th century broke. That's it. They broke upon that Russian wall over there. So uh, that I guess that is a a big thing. We'll talk about that again in the in the future, and I love doing these deep dives. But until tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to have you all back and uh, enjoy your evening. Hang in Laundry says a wonderful guest who knew John Garrison of JFK fame is John Barber. Superb guest, was a TV writer. He's old, treasured love. Uh, he made film on Garrison. He's old. Please have him on. Thank you. Well, Hang in Laundry is obviously a newbie. And it's okay if you are. I want to introduce the show to more and more people. But we have done at least five, four or five episodes with John Barber. He's a good friend of the show. In fact, I was just on the phone with him last month to give him some advice that he was looking for as far as how to market a new podcast series he was going to put out. In fact, I believe that John Barber's first episode that he did with us is still a highlighted episode on SoundCloud where we host the audio podcast version of this show. So go ahead and take a look at that. And yeah, no, we've we've done our work. We've done some good work. It's all starting to pile up and I'm I'm really proud of what we're doing and I'm so happy that you're doing it uh along with me out there in the audience and and keeping in touch and and you know what? Please, I don't plug the show and the uh, the subscription model too often, but I'll take an, uh, an opportunity here at the end. Please become a sponsor. Um, what we have been able to do to grow the show, maintain it with just about 1% of the audience uh, pledging monthly to the show, any kind of support, as little as $2 a month if you go to quitefrankly.tv on the Sponsor Us tab, uh, so much is given. As far as perks, universal across the board, the extra, um, the extra content, whether it be book clubs, the Sunday streams, the, the, the priority messaging with me, go to quitefrankly.tv on the Sponsor Us section or in any of the links below in this episode and consider becoming a small monthly sponsor or whatever you feel is appropriate. I, I would love to have you on as a, as a, uh, as a sponsor, and, and I'd love to welcome you on as I love doing and to hear from you and to to grow the show in the coming weeks, months, and years. So thank you one and all. I will see you tomorrow. Have a great evening and go to quitefrankly.tv because Hump Day programming is just about to get started. Good night. I'll catch you on the flip side. Quite frankly, is film before a live studio audience, and now our super chatters. Starting with Hanging Laundry, Free Dub, Problematic Will, Stostube, Ken McNeil, Valsky, Q Cooper, Booze Fighter, Ahab, and to all of our wonderful friends over there on the uh, Rumble Rants. You guys have been fantastic to me. I'm releasing the scratching on Foxhole, and I will see you on QuiteFrankly.tv in that chat room before long. Good night and thanks again to the legendary G. Edward Griffin.